Okay, so this evening, putting out a little podcast before trivia, I guess we start with kind of an interesting story. So earlier, what was it, or I guess last, late last week would be the right way to put it, I talked about Nagorno-Karabakh, which is basically a disputed territory inter- internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, even though Armenia also believes that it's part of Armenia. There's also the idea that it's governed by the Republic of Artsakh, also known as the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, and this is since the first Nagorno-Karabakh War. Since the end of the war in 1994, you've seen representatives of Armenia and Azerbaijan try to have peace talks, but a lot of violence has happened. This has actually become kind of a proxy war, not only between these countries, but also Russia has a lot of influence in Armenia. But I'll probably talk about this later in the week when there's more details, but basically thousands of protesters have flocked to Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia, and have called for the resignation of the country's prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan. Um, Basically, he's, according to reports, which are a little bit blurry, he surrendered Nagorno-Karabakh. Like, I guess they're holding a ceasefire... And this was one day after 32 people were killed in Azerbaijan's offensive against Armenian separatists in the area. Remember, there's Armenian separatists that want to either break away and form a new country or be part of Armenia. Azerbaijan owns it after basically being an Azerbaijani republic during the Soviet Union. It's exhausting, but apparently an agreement was settled between separatists and Azerbaijan And according to the agreement, the region's Armenian militia is going to disarm and disband. A lot of people are pissed off. But what I will say is this is a blow for Russia's influence in the region. I talked last week about how Armenian officials were actually meeting with Western leaders, including the United States. And this on top of that (laughs) makes it not great for Russia. But I'm actually fascinated by this because this is huge. This has been a conflict going on for quite some time prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. During the Soviet Union, you had Russian influence in the, the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan at the time. This is fascinating. I am going to move on just because it's all kind of changing right now. But I just wanted to start with that because this is a topic we used to discuss a little bit on the old podcast as well. And it's back in the news. It, it comes back into the, use, uh, the, the news Sorry, about every couple of years. So I guess not surprising, but fascinating. Anyways, I want to talk about how... A gentleman named, uh, I don't think I'm going to butcher it, but apologize if I do, Hardeep Sin Nijar, who is a Canadian Sikh leader. Uh, He's considered an Indian terrorist, according to the Indian government. And I want to talk about how he was murdered in Vancouver, Canada. And the Canadian government thinks that Indian, like like Indian forces or Indian intelligence, someone under the Indian government did it. And it's creating kind of a shit show for the United States and the UK because Canada wants the United States and the UK to support Canada's intelligence about this. But then the United States especially wants to maintain somewhat of a close relationship with India to keep China out of the region, basically make sure China doesn't get a better foothold in that part of the world. So it's kind of a mess. But let's start with an, with an article from The Economist here. It says, in the evening of June 18th, Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Canadian Sikh leader whom India considered a terrorist, 
was sitting in his in, in his truck in a car park outside a Sikh temple in Vancouver when two masked men shot him dead. They escaped through a park and disappeared. Later, on the article says here in quotes, on September 18th, Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, told lawmakers in Ottawa that credible intelligence from the country's security services linked India to the killing. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why this is all kind of crazy, because in a modern context and in normal times, the Canadian prime minister accusing another leader of a democracy for at least being involved in an assassination or a murder in another country, it's pretty crazy. It's just highly unusual for the leader of one country to accuse the other government of another country, especially democracies, for doing this, right? This kind of goes back to the idea of democratic peace theory. One democracy will never come into conflict or come into some row with another democracy. Now, I would argue India is a democracy because of its imperial past and because that's kind of how it was created after the imperialism ended there. But I also think India is becoming less and less of a democracy and more of kind of an illiberal state that is much less pluralist than it used to be. I think uh, Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, I don't think he's a great guy. He is quite far right, quite authoritarian, and he's definitely cracking down on free speech and minority rights. But I'll talk about that more later. But basically, I guess... So the G20 happened in Delhi on September 10th, and I guess Mr. Trudeau of Canada said he did discuss this allegation with Modi. From my understanding, it didn't really go too well. But then after the G20, (laughs) he said in quotes here to uh, the parliament in Canada, by the way, he said, any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. Now, I will second that because, okay, maybe India deems this guy a terrorist, for example. The problem here is this this guy is in India. He's li- I mean, not in India, sorry. He's in Canada, living under Canadian rights, the Canadian system. He has protections while he's there. And this is basically India just walking in. If the, again, the alleged allegations, if they're true... This is basically Indian officials just stomping all over Canadian law, not respecting the Canadian system, and going in there and doing something extrajudicial. And whether or not India deems this guy to be a terrorist, Canada hasn't, and I think this is a huge, A, just lack of respect for an ally, kind of a cooling ally, but still an ally nonetheless. But I also at the same time just think this is very troubling for one democracy or so-called democracy to do to another one. Now, I should also note that (laughs) the relationship between India and Canada has not been great. I guess uh, (laughs) shortly after Trudeau's remarks, he announced the expulsion of the head of India's intelligence agency in Canada. I guess that's what you do when, like, or that's the first step you take at least. But then India's definitely got into finger pointing as well. I would call it projection, but call me crazy. The Economist notes, India's foreign ministry categorically denied the allegation, calling it absurd and politically motivated and declared the reciprocal expulsion of a Canadian diplomat. Huh, crazy. It also uh, apparently accused Canada of sheltering Khalistani terrorists and separatists. Just so you guys know, a side note, when they're talking about Khalistani terrorists and separatists, 
It's a reference to the Sikhs, who are actually a pretty big population in both the United States and in Canada. Really involved in agriculture, trucking, just to name a few. Like, a very prominent voting base, to be completely honest. Actually, being here in Northern California and Nevada, there's actually a pretty big population in the Central Valley and outside of Sacramento. So, they're a pretty prominent group, and they're from um, parts of Northern India. They've been pretty damn persecuted. Um, basically, Sikh separatism has been a thing for a long time. They... There was a bloody insurgency in India in the 1970s, 1980s, and it's kind of been a growing issue between India and Canada for quite some time because, as I said, Canada, the United States, especially Canada, have a large Sikh diaspora, and India basically is accusing Canada of being soft on militant separatists. This is not a perfect comparison, but it's kind of like how the United States... Sweden, just to name a few, have uh, like brought in a lot of Kurds from Turkey and Syria and Iraq. And Turkey keeps arguing that places like Sweden are protecting Kurdish terrorists. Like that's the closest thing. It's not the same, but it's where you have a group that the home government that the group is from deems them a threat. And then they get protections because usually they're small and not a big actual risk to the government. And they're persecuted, so they get the hell out. And then, yeah, you you have this like kind of row of diplomacy between the countries. And I will say, though, that Khalistani terrorism, Sikh separatism, has definitely led to violence in Canada and obviously in India. Of course, there's going to be radicals that take it too far. It's the same with any separatist movements. You're going to have the moderates and the average people that just become victims of the political division and chaos. But at the same time, you are going to have the crazies who make it bad for everyone else. And Canada itself actually was the victim of a pretty big terrorist attack in 1985. It remains the deadliest terrorist attack in Canadian history. And what happened was... There was a bomb that blew up an Air Indian airplane that was flying from Montreal to London, killed 330 people that were mostly Canadians, and it was linked back to Kalistini, or Kalistani uh, terrorists. So the thing is, though, this is what India focuses on now. I would say it's less like it's less that the Sikh population is an actual threat to Modi. It's more that they are a political enemy and seen as someone who doesn't agree with his somewhat Hindu nationalism that wants a homogenous society in India. And I've covered in old episodes that I recommend you to check out, I've covered his crackdown on elections, his focus on Hindu nationalism, and I guess you could say the quasi-persecution of, of Muslims mainly. And... The interesting thing is, is in Canada, like you don't really want to, you don't want to alienate the Sikh population getting back to Canada because there's like almost 800,000. The number I'm seeing is 770,000, 77, sorry, let me see, numbers are hard. I've been doing numbers all day at work and um, 770,000 Sikhs in Canada are part of that voting block. And so people on the far left and the far right and the center are all trying to court the Sikh population, so obviously you don't want to piss them off, and I think that's that's pretty damn fair. Anyways, getting back to Canada, so I just wanted to give that background, and so basically 
in India, they kick out the, the, the head Canadian diplomat. And then The Economist notes that right-wing media in India and supporters of Mr. Modi echoed the government's line, accusing Mr. Trudeau of, part of pandering to terrorists. Not true. It's much like when Recep Erdogan of Turkey was basically saying, like, Sweden was harboring terrorists. It's no, like, the, the Kurds are, it's a complicated thing. They're a small minority that's always picked on by the government. But anyways, I guess <laughs> on September 1st, Canada actually said it paused trade talks with India, which I don't really think is good because I actually understand the realists out there, the foreign policy realists, what I mean, somewhat the neoliberals as well that think it's better we do trade with India than China. Obviously, we're not doing trade with Russia right now, and we do need to have some sort of connection and influence in the region. And I think it's somewhat problematic that we are seeing our neighbor to the north, Canada, get in a row like this. And it's not good because apparently at the G20 summit that happened in early to mid-September, other Western leaders had long meetings with Modi, including Joe Biden. And I guess Mr. Trudeau got a 10-minute huddle on the sidelines. It was basically a fuck you to him. And yeah, so these, these two countries are not getting along right now. And <laughs> I guess the the bigger issue here is that What's happening is that Trudeau is now leaning on the United States and the United Kingdom to basically kind of side with him and help support this investigation. And the thing is, is like both the British and American governments, foreign policy experts, are really treading softly on this, safely on this, because you don't really want to totally piss off India. And, and look, I mean, from the limited but growing knowledge I have of this issue, it does seem like the, <laughs> the evidence is pretty credible from the Canadian government. And to be honest, I think the United States and the United Kingdom should probably take it pretty seriously because from what I've been reading, this shows that a lot of other side effects could be getting worse here. What I mean here is that if Trudeau's allegation is correct, it looks like the assassination is kind of pointing towards an activism or an activist turn in the operations of RAW, as I'm going to call it, the RAW, which is the research and analysis wing, which is India's foreign, uh, foreign intelligence arm, which is kind of like their CIA or their Mossad, I guess you could say. And a lot of experts, including American foreign policy experts, ex-CIA, and uh, The Economist as well, say that the likeliest candidate for this assassination or murder, or killing, whatever you want to say, was probably the RAW. And I guess it's worrying because basically the RAW was formed after 1968. And <laughs> interestingly enough, apparently the CIA was actually involved in helping them get off the ground. And since then, the RAW has focused mainly on gathering intelligence and conducting operations in Pakistan, China, and India. So think like the ISI in Pakistan, the CIA, the MI6, that type of thing. And it's been, it's been credibly suspected of conducting black operations to influence India's neighbors and, as The Economist writes, to arrest and sometimes to kill its foes. But I guess this is why I think the West, especially the United States, the United Kingdom, should probably listen to Canada's warnings here, is because it, it seems like the RAW has kind of stayed out of the West. 
And I guess one of my side theories on this would be that we're seeing a lot of rising authoritarianism, a lot more violence and vitriolic rhetoric going on in a lot of our societies in the West. And maybe India feels it's the proper time to start doing this. They have a lot of experience in their own region. And The Economist writes here, India may hope to emulate Israel's Mossad, who famously strikes long, or sorry, who famously long arm strikes foes far away. And that would be my concern here. Even before I read that article, my mind was just going, Mossad, like that's that's what this kind of reminds me of. And that's not a good precedent to set because it shows that you're seeing a powerful organization feel that it has the ability to go into other countries and do things that are just not legal and not within the realm of their jurisdiction. And I I think if you learn from what Mossad does overseas, you should kind of hope that we push back on India. We can be friends with India. We can be allies with India. But we need to make the country clear that you can't just do extrajudicial killings because you deem them okay in foreign countries. And I understand the United States and the UK are walking a very, very tight rope here. But, like, when does it stop? We Do we want this to keep happening? And that, that's why I think India needs to be held accountable. Whether or not the Indian government disagrees with the Sikhs in its own country... You just can't go into foreign countries and do this. And I think all of this is built on the fiction that the United States and the UK, just to name a few, hold. And that fiction is that their partnership with India is based on sharing democratic values. Guys, it's not. It's about interests. I've continuously talked about how India and China, also Pakistan, obviously, but India and China do not get along. And that is why we find India still important. As China grows, we need a country to be a bulwark for Chinese growth. And this is all about interests. And I understand foreign policy, a good majority of foreign policy is about interests. But it's also about sending a signal to your so-called, ally, to, to your so-called allies that you can't fuck with us. You can't take advantage of us. And right now, I think India thinks they can. And we see that with the actions of the Mossad and a lot of other government organizations. You could say the same thing with Iran as well. The Revolutionary Guard was doing similar things as well. So, not good. And we just have to remember that this is all happening as India is becoming less and less of an open society. It's less democratic. Inside of India, Modi's government has muzzled the press tried to limit diversity and diversity of opinion in the courts and excuse me as i've said it's persecuted minorities so this is to me nothing particularly new but it's something we need to watch and i guess i guess i'll leave it at that a little bit shorter episode i gotta get to trivia so anyways let me know your thoughts i mean i just think india is continuously becoming a bad actor it's also buddying up with russia and making a lot of money with Russia off of the sanctions, buying Russian oil at the low still. I just think India is a troubling actor right now. Full stop. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.